We're in Revelation chapter 2, and we're looking at Jesus's words to the seven churches of Asia Minor. These are timeless words to the church throughout the ages, and we've started looking at the church at Ephesus in verses 1 to 7 of Revelation chapter 2, and this is the church where John, the author, the human author of Revelation, was the pastor, so I'm sure he felt um, a tug in his heartstrings as he was hearing these words. And we've noted a number of things about what Jesus has to say about this church. Ephesus was a large, significant cultural and sporting hub, a bit like Cardiff. The church of Ephesus, one of the great churches in the New Testament, renowned for its ministry. Paul, then Timothy, then John, well known for its missionary labours, and it had even experienced a touch, a movement of the spirits. Sounds a bit like our church here. And Jesus Christ praises the church there, which would have encouraged John no end because pastors need encouragement and he encourages them for two vital things things that we always must have soundness doctrinal soundness and zeal here is a church that is sound and it's not sound asleep it is living very very good it sounds like a near perfect church alas There is a but in Jesus's um, diagnosis of the church at Ephesus. And this is what we looked at last time. Nevertheless, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You have left your honeymoon love. Yes, you are outwardly successful. You haven't gone down the road of denying the doctrines of scripture you haven't become careless and worldly you are standing apart from all the immorality in Ephesus but there's something deeply wrong with you it hasn't shown itself outwardly yet it's a heart problem you have lost your love and that's where we ended and it's a scary scary place for a church to be Because on paper, the church at Ephesus was very successful. But Christ's X-ray eyes could see that there was something decaying. And I wonder if that's our problem uh, in this day and age. I think John's heart, because John was the apostle of love, John's heart must have sank when he heard this nevertheless, nevertheless, you have left your first love. Now, what we want to do this evening, God willing, is look at two things. The prescription that Jesus Christ gives to the church for this uh, heart disease, the prescription. And then we'll look at a promise that he makes, if there's enough time. So the prescription. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ isn't just the head of the church, He's also the one who heals our spiritual diseases. 
And just as you go to the doctor for a prescription, he makes his diagnosis like Jesus has done his spiritual diagnosis here, and then he writes a prescription, and you go to the chemist and get it. So Jesus here gives us a prescription for the loss of our first love. What is it? What's the gist of this prescription? Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Remember, repent. What have I got for the third? I try to get it to start with the same letter. Return. Remember, repent and do the first works. Return. Jesus is giving the church at Ephesus three R's. How many of you remember the three R's in school? Writing, reading, arithmetic. Those of you who are old enough will remember. That was your basic education. They teach our primary kids all sorts of things today. But some of you will have uh, had the three R's. And what Jesus Christ is doing to the church at Ephesus is taking them back to primary school. Here is a church that's had stellar ministry. And they probably think that they're not just secondary school, but university standard. But Jesus is saying, no, no, you've got a decay in your heart. You've lost that first love. And I'm taking you back. I'm taking you back to primary, even to infants. And you know what, my friends? That's what we need. We need to start again. The three R's. So let us look together this evening at this wonderful prescription that our Saviour gives to losing our first love so that we may know something of spiritual health returning to us. The first one, remember, remember. What a powerful thing memory is, you know? It was in our reading, the prodigal, uh, whether you think the prodigal is a picture of a Christian who's backslidden or of somebody who's converted, it doesn't matter. When the prodigal was all the way in the far country, now that can be somebody first convicted of sin or it can be a backslidden believer or a church. What happens to the prodigal? What's the first step? back to his heavenly father in modern translations you have i think luke 15 17 when the prodigal came to his senses in the authorized version when he came to his right mind what did the prodigal do he remembered what did he look back to he remembered what it was like in his father's house as he was feeding the swine and as he was hungry and couldn't even eat of the pods that the swine were having he was remembering that in his father's house even the lowest servants were being treated better than he was so the memory was doing its work and douglas kelly he's got a pre-preterist view of revelation very different if you read his commentary to a lot of commentators he uses this illustration remembrance is like opening a trap door from our dark cellar here we are 
in a backslidden state. We've lost our first love and we're not aware of it. And something happens and it causes our memory to function again. And it's like opening the trap door in the cellar and lights floods in and we begin to see things as they really are. Uh, Jesus Christ uses a similar analogy. Look at what he says. Remember from where you have fallen. Isn't that interesting? To lose one's first love is to fall. Have you ever thought of this as falling into sin? What heights I once enjoyed, but now I've fallen, I've fallen. Now, of course, uh, we would say quite rightly, if a brother or a sister uh, has a sin that they fall into, something like getting drunk or committing adultery uh, or some financial uh, shady dealings, we will say quite rightly, they've fallen into sin. But Jesus Christ here is saying the same thing of losing our first love. So here is the church at Ephesus, a sound church with such a lineage of ministry, a church that maintains a separation from the Nicolaitans, the people who said anything goes in Ephesus. They separated themselves from worldliness. They were hardworking. And Jesus says to them, you have fallen. You have fallen. You have fallen into sin, just like a drunkard, just like an adulterer, just like a person who is guilty of filthy lucre. You've fallen. We looked this morning, didn't we, at Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the new Sodom because they'd committed spiritual adultery. That's what losing the love of our betrothal, the honeymoon love, is in a sense. And so, yes, we can be guilty of adultery in the common sense of the word. But when we turn away from our bridegroom, aren't we committing adultery? When we go after other idols, things that are no gods, things that can never fill our hearts, isn't that the same in God's eyes? Adultery, adultery. We rightly say drunkenness is sin. But we can become drunk with our ambition. We can be drunk with anger. I find this quite scary. Remember. Remember. Now, a number of commentators see a link between the soundness of the church at Ephesus and think of them maintaining that doctrinal purity and purity of life in a very, very immoral society. Many commentators see that the seeds of decline was in that effort to maintain their soundness. What do I mean by that? I mean this they had become so strong on doctrinal purity that they were going too far 
that they were becoming heresy hunters, in effect. And in this climate, there would have been suspicion of all sorts of brothers and sisters and a lack of brotherly love. Now, you can see this happening in denominations sometimes. It doesn't happen often, because what tends to happen is denominations slide in the other direction. But there are Christian organizations where in order to maintain their purity doctrinally, they have so guarded things that they've become harsh and they've even uh, anathemized those who are true believers. It's something we must be very careful of. We're all creatures of reaction, aren't we? And the pendulum will swing from one extreme to the other. Either we can be lax, anything goes doctrinally and in terms of lifestyle, or we can swing the other way and we become too tight. We become more moral than God, more sound than the word. So we can understand that happening in Ephesus. They got distracted because they were so intent, and understandably so, on keeping themselves pure. I wonder, I'm no prophet, but I wonder, is that a danger for us? Remember, remember how it once was. Remember how you loved Jesus. Do you remember that? How you loved the truth. Not because it was something abstract, but because it's his truth. How you loved coming to church. Not because it was the done thing, but because you wanted to hear about Jesus Christ. Can you remember when the Sunday was the highlight of your week? Maybe for you it still is. And you, you didn't want the Sunday to end. It was like a little touch of what it will be like in heaven. Do you remember enjoying fellowship with God's people? Not just social gatherings, but talking about the Lord. Not in a forced way, but coming naturally. Do you remember the ease with which you would speak to others about the gospel? Not because you had to, but because you wanted to. Do you remember doing things in church? Again, not because you were told but because you just wanted to give yourself to the one who had given his all for you. And even the humblest task was such a privilege. Do you remember? Do you remember? Um, Richard Phillips, an American Presbyterian, he gives this account from somebody. Uh, this uh, person grew up and he grew up in a rural village, and he went to school, and he sat beside a sweet, innocent girl, and he was madly in love with her. She captivated his heart. And then he grew up, and he left the village and went into the city. He got into bad company, and he became a pickpocket. And one day, when he was pickpocketing somebody, he saw that girl again. 
And do you know what happened? He remembered. He remembered what he'd once been like. Seeing that girl brought it back to him. And this is how Philip supplies it. Suddenly, by seeing her, he remembers the boy he had once been and realized how far he had fallen. We may notice in others the Christian we once were, maybe a recent convert or one who is filled with the wonder of Christ and his grace. Isn't that what happens to a degree when somebody is converted? Thank God we have had some come to know Christ over the years. And there's a freshness, isn't there, about a new convert. And it's a reminder to us, especially those of us who've been following the Lord for a long time, that yes, there is life, there is abundance of life in him. Or maybe you've had the amazing privilege of meeting not so much a well-known Christian, but a godly, a godly man or a woman. I'm not putting them on a pedestal here. The first time I met John and Mary of Bala, I was keeping a diary still in those days, and there was nothing special about them, absolutely nothing. But there was so much of Christ. I wrote in my diary, if I'm going to have any kind of Christianity, I want it to be John and Mary's sort of Christianity. The seeing of them reminded me that even in a time of dearth, there is such a thing as vital love-motivated Christianity. Have you remembered? Have you remembered? What did Cooper write? Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is that soul-refreshing view? Isn't that just it? That soul-refreshing view of Jesus in his word. Remember, remember. The second R, repent, repent. Now, in the original, in the Greek, remember is a continuous activity. It's a continuous thing. We constantly need to remind ourselves. That's why we have communion twice a month. But the word for repent here in the Greek, is a decisive moment, a once and for all activity. What does it mean here? It means a change of heart, or to put it more accurately, a change of attitude. So come back to the prodigal. There he is remembering, right? He's remembering. He has fallen. He's fallen from such a height, and he's reminding himself of what it was like in his father's house. And what happened to him? He repented. He had a change of mind. Not in a small way now. He came to his right mind, just like the lights coming in through the trapdoor. And you begin to see the dark cellar you were in is just that. You might have thought it was a palace before. <laughs> but now you see, I'm in a mess. Divine light shining into our darkness. Opened by the trap door of memory. 
a person coming to their senses. I've got a little theory that you can sometimes see it in a person's face when it has happened. When a person has come to the place where they realise, to quote what I said this morning, mea culpa, it's my fault. You can see the cleanness in their face. You can see the difference. You can see this person's been humbled. I'm sure you would have seen the difference in the prodigal. The difference between the prodigal leaving his father's house and going into the far country thinking he was going to have a whale of a time and the prodigal after he'd come to his senses. I think there'd been a different look to him. In the voyage of the Dawn Treader, have you read it? One of the Chronicles of Narnia. There is a boy called Eustace. Horrible, horrible boy, Eustace. Opinionated, high view of himself, horrible. Obnoxious as company. And to cut a very, very long story short, this very strong-willed boy turns into a dragon. And he comes to his senses. He meets Aslan, who is a picture of Jesus Christ. And C.S. Lewis masterfully describes repentance, the change of attitude, as Eustace realizing he hadn't seen it, that he'd become a dragon. Now, think of it as you realizing that you've become a sinner, that you had become a uh, rotter. I know that's old English, but I am old-fashioned. <laughs> you just realize that you're, you've just been a terrible Christian. And you know what Eustace tries to do then? He doesn't want to be a dragon anymore. He doesn't want to have this hard, scaly skin. You don't want to have a hard heart for Christ, do you? You don't want to be somebody who's obnoxious. You want to be Christ-like and humble and loving. And so what Eustace tries to do, he tries to peel off the scales. Maybe you've read it. And it's like peeling an onion. One layer comes off and then he finds there's another layer underneath it. And then he peels that layer and then he finds, lo and behold, there's another layer underneath it. And he's despairing. Isn't it like that when we come to our right mind and we don't want to be the person we've become and we try to change ourselves and there's nothing wrong with that. And then the lion said, capital L, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like Billy. Oh, but it's such fun. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> it's such a relief, maybe, to see it coming away. Have you come to your senses? The psalmist in our call to worship 
I acknowledged my sin to you and mine iniquity have I not hid. What's the psalmist doing? He's doing what they say about Yorkshire people. He's calling a spade a spade. He's calling himself a sinner. He's naming probably the sins that he has committed. And that's what we've got to do. We've just got to be open with God. Lord, I've been proud spiritually. I can look back on some parts of my spiritual life and I thought at the time that they were high points. But in actual fact, I was filled with spiritual pride. And you begin to loathe yourself, not in an unhealthy way, but this is the sorrow, the sorrow that leads to repentance, the godly sorrow. So have you had a change of outlook? That's all repentance is here. It's, it's not that all. It's revolutionary. It's seeing things in a completely different light and realizing that the problem aren't those other Christians, but the problem is yourself, yourself. And then return, return. What's this? Well, it speaks for itself, doesn't it? This, in a way, is the practical aspect of repentance. The prodigal remembered he came to his right mind. He repented in essence. And then what did he do? He didn't just bemoan himself. He got up on his feet. He went back to his father and lo and behold, even before he got there, his father came running after him and he didn't have time to say his prayer of confession because his father embraced him and his father lavished his gifts upon him. And we find, don't we, that Jesus Christ is like that. But notice how Jesus puts it in terms of returning to him. I find this most encouraging. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. And then this is what he does. He says, do the first works. Do the first works. Now, why do I find that encouraging? I'm encouraged there because Jesus doesn't say, feel your first feelings. That's the trap we fall into when we realize we've lost our love and we long rightly to have that feeling of love back but the thing is we can't create feelings it's an impossible task so Jesus doesn't say feel your first feelings but do your first works another illustration think of a ship a sail ship stuck in the doldrums that ship can't produce the wind to take her out of the doldrums but the sailors can set the sails up so that when the wind comes, the ship starts moving again. And that's what we have to do. We can't, we can't rekindle that love. Only Jesus by his Spirit can do that. But what we can do is start doing what we were doing when we were in love with him. That's good advice, isn't it? It's good advice in any area of life. Don't just sit there waiting for something to happen, waiting for the miracle to come, because it never does. Start doing those things and in the doing the feelings then come so what's the first work what's the first work of every christian what was the first work you did this is the work of god that you believe on him whom he has sent said jesus wasn't that the first work we did in a sense it's repentance we turned 
in faith to the cross. So what's the first work? If we start again, we go back to the cross. I can't think of any better place to start again than Calvary. Near the cross, a trembling soul. Love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star shed its beams around me. So go back. That's why I love our church, because as much as we can, we try to have a gospel preaching service once a week, because we are always being brought back to the foot of the cross. And if we have a problem with hearing the gospel week in, week out, then we have a problem, because we are still sinners and unworthy and need to be reminded that salvation is all of Christ, all of grace, and there's nothing more thrilling than coming again and again to Calvary. Oh, the cross, the cross. At the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my sin rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. I know of no better place to go to to restore first love than the cross, the cross. And then... What, what do you do? You do the things you were doing when you were first saved. Can you remember what those things were? Little baby steps. There's a saying, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. So I'm just reminding myself here now, what uh, was the first steps I took? What was your first steps? Well, you prayed, didn't you? You didn't say a prayer. You didn't know much about praying. But you spoke to your father as if he was your father. Do that again. Don't think of prayer time as some long, dreary period where you have to tick all the boxes. In the words of Billy Bray, take it to father. Even an arrow prayer directed to God is more real praying than a long time in prayer. And if you start like that, you can spend longer then. And then, of course, we read the Word of God, but we didn't do it out of sheer duty because our daily Bible reading scheme said so. We did it because God is speaking to us in his Word. And we couldn't get enough of books about the Bible. And even if it helps you to read the book you read when you were first saved, for me, you can guess what it was. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Maybe you listened to certain kind of music when you were first saved. The Calvinistic Methodist hymn book came alive to me. Three hours. Remember, repent, return. How practical, how gracious. Very quickly, there's not just a prescription here, but there's a promise. There's a promise. There's a twofold promise. I said a few sermons ago that these letters were covenant documents, solemn agreements, marriage agreements. And like the covenant in the Old Testament, there's a threat if we disobey, and there's a blessing if we obey. And the threat is judgment, and it is scary. Listen to Jesus. The second half of verse 5, if you don't do this, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Spurgeon 
This he must do. He cannot allow his light to be apart from love. And if the first love is left, the church shall be left in darkness. The truth must always shine, but not always in the same place. Not always in the same place. Jesus will build his church, but no congregation has a monopoly on him. Ephesus. What's in Ephesus today? Nothing. Well, there might be small works by now, I don't know. But nothing major. Do you know what happened eventually to the church in Ephesus? It turned into a mosque. Sound familiar? The church turning into a mosque. This church that had all of its heritage because it had lost its first love. I don't think it happened at once. Jesus said, I will come quickly in judgment, but God's timing is different to ours. So I can imagine the church carrying on, outwardly successful, large congregations, sound teaching, uh, tireless activity, but there's something lost. And because there's something lost from the inside, she's dying from the inside, and eventually she will crumble on the outside. You see, a generation after blessing where there's been life only has the shell and the next generation say why do we need the shell let's do away with the lots that's happened that's happened in Ephesus it's happened in Wales where 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 is the light in Llangaitho two three hundred years ago there would have been thousands of people in the 18th century now, thousands of people in the fields of Llangaitho hearing Daniel Rowland. The churches would have been packed for decades and decades afterwards. There's only a handful of people there today. And I don't think there's a gospel church there. There's no candlestick there. What about our fair city of Cardiff? It's not just in Ephesus a church was turned into a mosque. What about Cruis Road? What about some of the well-known churches in Cardiff that had stellar ministries? Where are they now? What about Wood Street, Congregational Church? I heard of some people, they've gone to glory now, but they went to that church in the middle of the last century probably and heard powerful preaching there. There's no more. What about Memorial Hall? It was part of the denomination we came out of. It was as big as our church once. It's no more. These are no idle threats. Richard Brooks, he's still alive. He's not a Puritan. I thought he was a Puritan. A church can't continue forever on a loveless course. We see signs of this all around. When godly ministries have been withdrawn, gospel fruitfulness brought to an end, and churches closed down or sold. We must each look to ourselves. The number of chapels in Wales that are now either other places of worship or nightclubs or houses should scare us to ask, Lord, is it I? Is it us? Lord, don't let it be us. There's that threat. And then to end, I don't want to end on a negative. There is blessing. He that is near to hear, verse 7, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. We lost our blessings, didn't we? The fall happened because our first parents took the forbidden fruit of the tree in the Garden of Eden. And then the church was set up because the last Adam, Jesus Christ, climbed another tree, the tree of the cross, and he brought the fruit of eternal life to us. And there is something even uh, more developed here. Uh, Spurgeon again, Eve took of the first fruit of the forbidden tree and gave to Adam, and Adam ate and fell and died. The reverse is the case in the promise before us. The second Adam, Christ, takes of the divine fruit from the tree of promise as a result of the cross and hands it to his spouse, the church, us, and we live forever. What a blessing. My friends, if we walk with Christ, even in the midst of a perverse generation like the church of Ephesus was living in, if we not only maintain faithfulness of doctrine and of life, in terms of purity and of zeal, in terms of our uh, works for the Lord, but if we keep watch over our hearts so that all of these things flow from love to Christ, even if we don't see a revival, Jesus can draw near. He can draw near. And do you know what he can give you? He can give you his known and felt presence in thy presence is fullness of joy. Jesus can give you uh, what one hymnist called celestial sweets. Do you know what that means? Heavenly sweets. The things, uh, the fruits that he plucks from the tree of promise as a result of his death on the cross. And even in this thorn infested world, he can give us to eat of those things. Don't you want that? Don't you want to have Jesus walking beside you? It doesn't matter how big or great the church is. If each person in the church has a close walk with Jesus Christ, that church won't die. That church won't. Well, very well. Let's finish there. We'll, God willing, move next Sunday evening to the next church. But... Don't we need an infusion of love? Don't we need to confess, to remember, to come to our minds, to repent, and to return, redo the first works? Don't we need some of Christ's, not just sweets, but his medicine? Don't we? I think we do. But praise God for a Savior who is so willing, so loving, so ready to bless even where blessing isn't deserved.